Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, cloudy skies and thunderstorms are expected in the area. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. Did you know this? Yes, it's over $10 billion of medications that are going to waste every year. So if we can recycle cans... We can recycle medications that save people's lives. Coming up later on the program, a conversation with Kia Williams, co-founder of Serum, a nonprofit tech company with the mission to make prescription medicines more affordable. That conversation coming up later. Right now, an update on the number of coronavirus cases here in Georgia. As we do every day, there are 145,575 confirmed COVID-19 cases. There are 3,176 deaths, 15,047 are hospitalized, and of those, 2,829 are ICU admissions. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And because Georgia's COVID-19 numbers continue to rise, a number of school districts, colleges, and universities are making changes regarding this upcoming school year. Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark Atlanta will all start the school year remotely. The announcement coming yesterday in a press release from the Atlanta University Center Consortium. Clark Atlanta University President George French, who chairs the AUCC Council of Presidents, said, quote, We announced this decision with a heavy heart. We know how vital the in-person connection and bonds formed throughout the AUCC are to our students. We wish the situation were different, but we must do our part to help support the health and safety of our community. And Georgia's largest public school district, Gwinnett, announcing it will not resume in-person learning in a few weeks. Classes are set to start on August 12th. Also, a number of other large districts have either delayed the start of school or announced plans for remote learning. This includes Atlanta, DeKalb, Fulton, Cobb, and Savannah, Chatham counties. Now, to our neighboring state of Florida. More than 59,000 coronavirus cases were reported in the U.S. alone yesterday. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Of these, more than 10,000 of those cases came out of Florida. Our neighboring state has experienced a surge of cases, an increase of 60 percent since the beginning of July. And as we hear in a press conference given by Governor Ron DeSantis, tensions are rising as well. Doing an antibody test may be a better option because if you had been, if you had been infected, then you. That is not how you want a press conference to go. But just how did Florida now become the nation's newest hotspot, so to speak? That's what they say. And what can Georgia learn from our neighboring state in terms of how all this has been unfolding there? Veronica Zaragova is a health care reporter at WLRN, a Miami-based NPR station that serves South Florida. She's been following this and she joins me now. Veronica, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much, Rose, for having me. Let's back up for our listeners who may not be aware, because Florida, they actually reopened some businesses back on May 4th, correct? Right. And so that's been part of the problem is that Florida was among the states that closed a little too late and opened a little too early. Mm. And now were the beaches closed at some point as well? Yeah, so the beaches have been closed at certain points. Most recently, um, the three counties in South Florida, um, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach closed them over the July 4th holiday weekend. And I think part of the frustration is that um, people see short-term 
uh, strategies to mm -hmm. contain the disease and the spread of the virus, but they're, they're not seeing a long-term mm -hmm. um, approach to, to containing it. And by what metrics did the governor use to determine that it would be okay to ease restrictions? From your knowledge, was he just looking at the number of cases or deaths? Or what was sort of the metric that he used to say, okay, we're going to reopen here? So the governor has been saying that uh, for, for a while, Florida did have a positivity rate that wasn't that high compared to to other states and what that means is that that's the percentage of people who test positive mm -hmm. um but once florida started testing more as well as the disease uh, the virus spreading and then um more people testing positive for the disease then this positivity rate has has really spiked especially here in miami dade county which is the hardest hit mm -hmm. part of florida and um so actually at this point i would say that even health care professionals and experts don't think that there should be the amount of reopenings that we have given um, where the numbers are. Let me ask you this, because you all have a task force, just like Georgia has a task force related to COVID-19. Did they favor this decision by the governor? Did they even have any input before he made the decision to reopen? Well, the, the task force here in Miami-Dade has been... Um, especially speaking with the mayor of Miami-Dade, Carlos Jimenez. Mm -hmm. And I would say that they aren't as vocal in press conferences that I've participated in about how dangerous these reopenings could be. They do emphasize a lot of the you know, mask wearing and, and the importance of the social distancing. Um, but most recently we had on WLRN one of the infectious disease experts on this task force say that the um, criticized leader official elected officials who are not wearing their masks when they're telling people to wear masks so we're now starting to hear a little bit of more um urgency from this task force than than i had heard mm -hmm. in the recent past and so now veronica let me ask you this are cities able to enact their own regulations as relates to mandating masks or, or curfews or does the governor have the blanket authority to make that for the entire state? How's that working? Right now, it has all very much been at the local level. And I hear from experts and, and even actually elected officials like mayors who have been asking Governor Ron DeSantis to to mandate masks across the state. Mm. Um, beyond that, Every city um, has been, for instance, here in Miami Beach, there is now a curfew of 8 p.m. in the entertainment district. Mm. Um, so uh, different cities have different curfews. Different cities have different mask rules. And I think that this is causing a lot of confusion because people travel so easily from one of uh. these cities within Miami-Dade mm -hmm. to even to the other neighboring counties. So you could be in one county where there's a certain mandate and then you travel and there's to another county and there's there's nothing in a sense. Wow. Exactly. Even that, for instance, that mask wearing for quite a while in Miami-Dade County, you couldn't enter a supermarket without a mask. And only recently has the rest of, let's say, the public supermarket chain and Walmart and Sam's Club, they've now uh, made it a policy, for mm -hmm. instance, that you have to wear a mask at all of their stores throughout the whole state. So even that's been a bit, you know, unequal and confusing for, for I would say, for consumers. And, you know, I'm curious also, Veronica, because this surge in confirmed cases, obviously it's probably led to more hospitalizations. But what kind of effect, to your knowledge, do you know that this is having on hospitals throughout the state? Do they have enough ICU beds, do they have enough ventilators? What are you hearing? That's a great question. Some hospitals have are, are at capacity with their ICU beds, but let's say Jackson Health System, which is the state's largest public health system, they've been converting beds to ICU beds and units to COVID-19 units. So they say that in terms of beds they're managing for now, what's been hard, very difficult for hospitals around Florida is to have sufficient nurses because mm -hmm. a COVID patient requires so many nurses on hand. And for instance, at Jackson Health System, about 200 
nurses have become infected mm. with COVID-19. And um, it, they say it's not because of the, their work at the hospital, it's community infections. So doctors are uh, just feeling very frustrated with the poor mask wearing outside because it's causing people to get ill. Mm. And um, so the state has been contracting nurses to send to hospitals across the state. And um, that's, that's gonna help with the staff shortage. Wow. And Veronica, when all this started, we had heard that blacks and and Hispanics and Latinos were at a higher risk. Obviously, those that might have had a pre-existing condition. What do you know in terms of what groups now are experiencing an increase in confirmed cases down there in in your area? It remains the case that black and Latino residents of Florida are disproportionately impacted. And um, at one point, that's what led the opening of walk-up clinics in, in throughout uh, throughout Florida to um, in neighborhoods where people who are most affected could more easily go and get tested because testing has been such a problem mm-hmm. in the state. And uh, we also, the other people who have been very heavily impacted are the residents and the staff at nursing homes. And the staff at nursing homes are also usually black individuals. And so mm-hmm. that's just been um, very difficult and um, the nursing home, the, the numbers have dropped a little bit. They used to be the majority of cases, and now it's about almost about half and half. But wow. um, we see numbers rising in prisons, too. So, yeah, it's, it's a difficult landscape. Wow. And again, Veronica, the cities or counties that top the list with the COVID-19 cases again? It's at Miami. Miami-Dade County is the hardest hit. Um, and then would be Broward County. Here in South Florida, we have the, the majority of the cases, and mm. it has to do uh, with the density, also with uh, multi-generational families, and this is the kind of area where people's families live in, in close proximity. So mm-hmm. even if you're not all living in the same household, it's very typical to spend weekends with family uh, which might not be the same case, you know, in other states where people are, are more spread spread mm-hmm. out and, and live at greater distances. So that's, uh, yeah, partly to blame. Veronica, is the Florida legislature, are they able to do anything at all? Or are they just kind of everything that the governor does is what's going to be? I mean, what role are they playing in all of this? That's a great question. And I, I have heard of some, for instance, we have in the county just north of Miami-Dade in Broward County, a state representative who, who um, Chevron Jones, he has he has um, become infected with COVID-19. Mm. And so I hear some members of the state legislature speaking out about um, the need for, for a, a mask mandate in the state and for better testing. Um, but right now, I think they're just they're doing what they can, but because there's, there's, they're not going back into session until mm-hmm. ne- next year, that mm-hmm. really, I think they're not able to do that much. Uh, Veronica, your station, WLRN, how are you all managing through this? Are you working from home? Do you go into the station at all? And how long have you all sort of been, I guess, shut down as well, too? Or are you all shut down? Yeah, it's a great question. We are all working remotely, and we are not um going out into the field unless they're very very careful precautions like with a boom pole if this was an essential we've had a colleague of mine went out to report on these new they were called they're called surge teams and they've been going it's groups of people who've been going out in certain of uh, certain of miami dates most hard-hit neighborhoods to hand out masks and so one of my colleagues went out um, to shadow them a little bit from a dis from a safe distance, but we really are trying to do everything from home, which is, you know, so difficult because that's what radio journalism is all about mm-hmm. to get that sound. And so we, but we we definitely want to be safe and keep our listeners safe. And so um, we're really just not. I haven't seen my colleagues at all. <laughs> I'll end with asking how you are doing in all of this as well. There's been a lot of talk about the emotional toll and for some people the trauma of covering something like this and even the protests uh, particularly as journalists of color here i want to ask you from one to another how are you doing thank you so much for the question i you know on the one hand i'm i let's say in terms of the the protests i'm just very encouraged to see people um 
take their freedom of expression, their ability to express themselves. From what I observed, the ones that, that I you know put, uh, that I saw, people were wearing masks, and um, but it is very difficult because. Then in general, covering this from every angle, you're mostly seeing a lot of tragedy. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's that's the hardest part is that everything that I cover, I'm, I'm focused a lot on nursing homes. And um, that topic is especially difficult. Mm -hmm. But I am encouraged to see, for instance, that the state is trying to work on its testing. And so anything that that I can report on that shows that there's uh, some kind of improvement in, in what, what's been happening um, is always a welcome change. Uh, and thank you for what you all are doing down there, and especially you as well. Veronica Zaragovia is a healthcare reporter at WLRN, Miami-based, our sister station, as we say, affiliate that serves South Florida. Lessons we can all learn from what different states are doing. Veronica, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. When you get to Atlanta, come and we'll hang out. Or if I get to Miami, we'll hang out. That would be fantastic. And thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be on. Thanks a lot. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Since its founding in 1982, the mission of the Atlanta-based Carter Center includes this. I'm quoting, a fundamental commitment to human rights and the alleviation of human suffering. The center seeks to prevent and resolve conflicts, enhance freedom and democracy, and improve health. Close quote. It's also a place that holds forums and conferences, all dedicated to the above-mentioned mission. And now there's new leadership. Paige Alexander is the newly named Carter Center president and CEO. And so what does that mean? It means she joins me now. Paige, welcome to the program. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. It's very good to be here. We're in a space now in our nation where there is, quite frankly, there is some division. Um, there is tension as it relates to race and racism and equity. Uh, what do you make of this time in our nation? And of course, all this taking place during a pandemic. Yeah, I, you know, it was amazing for me. I've spent the past three years in Europe. And so when I arrived on the plane in Atlanta, it was June 1st, I was greeted by the CDC, you know, taking my temperature and asking if I had been to Iran or to China, which given their numbers compared to ours was seemed a little dated as a question. And then driving down the street, uh, again, this is right after George Floyd going to my parents' house and seeing the devastation that had happened. I, you know, it was a shocking way to arrive. And then to see in the, as soon as I got to my parents and they had the news on and I saw what was happening in uh, Washington, which had been my previous hometown and uh, in Lafayette Square and people being called out, uh, militia essentially being called out to break up peaceful protests. I thought, what a time to be coming into the Carter Center. If many of these things were happening internationally, the Carter Center would be very involved mm -hmm. in this. And so it's hard, yet the opportunities really exist now to come into a place where these conversations are happening. And the Carter Center, they've been happening for a while. And so this is a, I see this as an opportunity to elevate the discussion. You're coming into this, as I mentioned, <laughs> during a pandemic, and the work of the Carter Center is so important in not only just this community, but on the global scale. So how do you begin to, if you do, prioritize maybe some of your initiatives or just build upon the mission that the Carter Center has already been doing for so long? Yeah, well, you know, I, the founders, President and Mrs. Carter, mm -hmm. when they put these issues into place, peace and health. This was the North Star. This has been what they have been working on for 40 years. This has been a pro post-presidential legacy 
which the Carter Center has really wrapped itself around from neglected tropical diseases on the health side and trying to eradicate and eliminate in the Western Hemisphere many of these, uh, these areas that we've been working in to 111 overseas missions to look at election observation. These are human rights issues that every person, regardless of where they live, deserves to have the attention of health and democracy. And so as I look at the Carter Center and I try to prioritize when I'm not seeing most of the staff in 3D format, everyone <laughs> is on screen, it's, you know, we have almost 3,000 employees in, between Atlanta and our overseas offices. And it's hard to get to know people, but at the same time, we're all in the same position of trying to figure out this new normal. And so my priorities would always be to listen first uh, and it's harder to do, but at the same time, there's the opportunity to have these discussions uh, because we're all just a little off kilter and we're all trying to figure out how to do this the right way. And so the conversations are really happening. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful to have walked into a place where they've always happened. And Paige, you have an extensive, I do mean extensive uh, career path on a global scale as well. I would need a whole another hour to read your entire bio. But how did how does that experience working on the global from humanitarian diplomatic issues? How does that help prepare you for this role in the Carter Center? Well, I feel incredibly lucky to have landed here. One, Atlanta is my home. This mm-hmm. is uh, where I grew up. Uh, all three of my brothers live here. My parents are still here and they've been very active in the community since uh, the late 50s. So this is really a chance for me to return home. But I've been traveling for 35 years. I have lived overseas. I've lived in Central and Eastern Europe. I've lived in Western Europe. And I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East and North Africa. And this, and 23 years in Washington, which some people would say is its own developing country these days. Uh, but this has been a wonderful combination for me of both the politics that I started my career working on campaigns, the policy work I've done in the U.S. government, the international work that I've done directly with NGOs, non-government organizations, and it all rolls up into what the Carter Center is doing. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's a return home in many more ways than just the physical return to Atlanta. Well, let's talk about the influence of your parents, Miles and Elaine activists in their own right. Your father was an attorney. Growing up in the movement, in a sense, as a child. Yeah, I was. And my father would correct you. He's still an attorney. He's uh, 88 and he is. Please tell Mr. Alexander my apologies, (laughs) please. (laughs) No, no. He's, you know, but that that just goes to show what type of uh, grounding my folks have had. You know, my mother was relocated from Boston uh, to Atlanta, and they really jumped in with both feet. And uh, back in the day, you know, during the civil rights movement, I did grow up with um, with you know, Maynard Jackson and Andy Young and Michael Lomax you know, around our table. And these are conversations, and Congressman Lewis, these are conversations that I had with them from a very young age. And it, you know, it, it was something that really formed me. I have three older brothers who have spent a lot of time, obviously, in Atlanta, and each have made their own mark here. But really, what my parents sort of led us as a family to do growing up in the 70s and the 80s was really be a part of Atlanta and every part of Atlanta, not just the part the bubble that we lived in. And for that, I'm forever grateful. And it's really what made me want to go overseas and also see what could be done there. And so taking these lessons together and bringing them back has been uh, really a, a, an ultimate win-win for me. And my family is here now with me and they're experiencing Atlanta, which is great. As you know, this is a huge election year. We're in the midst of an election season. I know this is an issue the Carter Center regularly focuses on. Um, what concerns do you have page in terms of this election season about voter suppression and voter rights? Yeah, you know, this is an area that we're, the Carter Center really, we'd like to have a voice in this. We are, we recognize that um, if any of these issues were happening overseas, 
any of these question marks were out there, we would be active. At the same time, we're not a domestically focused organization. So as we look at election monitoring, as we look at uh, election administration, you know, a lot of this is, are things that other people are focused on. So we are starting to have those conversations with groups that really do know the legal aspects of it, the, the administration aspects of it, and we want to be part of that. And so we're, you know, just now trying to find our voice and and look for partners that we can be bringing some of the experiences that we've had abroad. Again, 111 elections that we've uh, looked at in, in 39 countries. It gives us the ability to sort of see what might be coming over the, the, the ridge. And, you know, Paige, as I mentioned earlier, the Carter Center has also, while being a museum, but it also has, it's been this place to bring in scholars and, and authors and people can attend events and you all have held forums there. But now we're in a pandemic, so... What approach are you and the team taking to even start to begin about making decisions when you can open the Carter Center back up? Are you looking at next year? Do you think this year at all? Yeah, so you know, right now our, our guiding principle is obviously to follow the science. <laughs> this is uh, what CDC, uh, we, we are really relying on that. For, you know, we did a global pulse survey internally and found that over 90% of our staff feel that they're working productively from home. Mm -hmm. And that tells me a lot, you know, again, coming in and not being able to walk the halls or, or talk to people directly and see how they're working, how their working situation is. We're fortunate. We're spread between three buildings. Uh, and ideally we'd like to get back to work, but mm -hmm. when staff are working productively from home, you know, we're just going to be supportive to to them. And for now, that seems to be working. Uh, but schools aren't in session. And I've got my own high schooler. And we're going to have to figure out what this looks like in the fall. And from a fiscal standpoint, you know, as the CEO, have you looked at the books in terms of revenue loss? Yeah, you know, we anticipate some ne negative impact on our fundraising, uh, but at the end of the day, given the financial resources that we have and the fiscal discipline that our founders had put into place, you know, we we have reserves in order to weather a number of crises. The mm -hmm. most important thing for us is keeping our commitments in the field and to be able to continue uh, to the extent that we're allowed with mass drug administrations in the field to be able to look at, you know, democratic backsliding, human rights issues, those are the important things to us. And so fortunately, again, due to our founders and excellent management by our board, we can weather that rainy day. And finally, as we wrap up, I want to talk about the namesake there. You've probably had many conversations, I'm sure, with President Carter and, and his wife, Rosalind. When was the last time you spoke with them? Uh, so I spoke to them twice last week, so, uh, and they are still doing incredibly well. Uh, you know, he is swimming every day and it is just, it's amazing. He is still the smartest politician in the room or smartest person in the room when, when you start talking about some of these issues, whether it's discussing Guinea worm eradication or, you know, uh, elections in Guyana, he is still on top of it and she is still, you know, absolutely adamant that we look at mental health issues mm -hmm. uh, because we know, especially in this pandemic, that is affecting everybody. And so these are two people who, although they have stepped back uh, a bit in their retirement, um, they're still sounding boards for, for the chair of our board, Jason Carter, who is their oldest grandson, mm -hmm. and for me. And so we rely on, on their input. Did they give you any words of advice? <laughs> Sure. The last words of advice, when are you coming down to Plains again? <laughs> so uh, I, I, I am open to all words of advice coming from from them on this. So uh, it's, you know, it, it's fascinating to me that they are as engaged as they are, uh, yet as willing to let the experts at the center sort of move forward in a new transition. And so that's an important piece of sort of our game plan moving forward, making sure this legacy stays true to the meaning that they established in the beginning. Paige Alexander, 
Welcome home. She joined the Carter Center as the new chief executive officer and president just last month, succeeding ambassador, now retired Mary Ann Peters. Paige, again, welcome home. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Rose. It's great to be on the show, and I look forward to talking to you as, as we continue our journey. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Let's face it. We're now in a place where comparing how we all lived pre-COVID-19, you know, before the coronavirus pandemic and after. But here's something else. Before the coronavirus pandemic, the average American spent about $1,200 on prescription drugs a year. That's from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's a higher rate than any other developed country in the world. And healthcare experts worry the COVID-19 pandemic will just amplify the problem. Actually, the New York Times reports multiple prescription managers indicate prices are increasing for certain prescriptions. Which ones? Well, those for conditions associated with the higher coronavirus risk. This is a problem one local nonprofit tech company hopes to address. And joining me now to discuss all of this is Kia Williams. She's the co-founder of Serum, which operates out of Georgia and California. And they specialize in distributing surplus medicine to low-income Americans. And they recently, well, they've got some news to share because they're going to be hopefully be able to help some folks. Kia, welcome to the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into what you all are doing and how you're going to be able to help folks um, with their prescription drugs, let's begin by just you reflecting on this pandemic in general and how this is probably going to change our nation's healthcare system going forward. I could spend literally hours uh, talking about how this pandemic is basically just shedding a light on inequalities and let's face it, injustices mm -hmm. in our healthcare system that were already there. Today in America, more people die from not taking medications that they need than car accidents and opioids combined. Mm -hmm. And the cost to our healthcare system of people not taking medicine is projected to be somewhere around 100 to $300 billion a year. And so this is all pre-COVID-19. Now, Gallup recently had a poll, and according to a recent study, almost 9 in 10 U.S. adults are either very concerned or somewhat concerned that the pharmaceutical industry will use the pandemic to actually raise drug prices. Truth in that statement. So, you know, I think that healthcare costs are very complicated in this country. We do have a very, very expensive healthcare system. I think we all know that it's not truly sustainable. But I think another thing that's really missing from the conversation is how much opportunity there is to reduce some of those costs with the resources that we already have. So many estimates show that of all of the almost 18% GDP on healthcare costs as a country, and most estimates show that about a third of those costs are wasted. One of the most blatant sources of waste that we see is actually in physical prescription drugs. So there's upwards of $10 billion of unused medications. These are unused, unexpired medications that go to waste. So I think that there's a lot that we can go into to kind of discuss, like how are we pricing medications? Um, what are reimbursement rates? How are we making sure that those are affordable for all families in America? But I think there's an equally important and like to some extent an easier conversation to say, how do we reduce waste and how do we make sure things like medications are actually going to people who need them rather than being sent to incinerators? When you talk about the root cause of the high cost of prescription medicine, that's a whole nother hour's worth of conversations. Some will always point to obviously the pharmaceutical companies and, and they'll use the word, well, they're just greedy. Um, some will say it's Congress. There's a lack of regulation. Some will say it's something else. So is it at the intersection of all of that? Or through your lens, what is the root cause of these high costs of prescription medicines, period, in this nation? Well, I, I want to differentiate. This is an important differentiation is that there is a difference between what a drug might cost mm -hmm. a system versus what is it costing an individual? 
And I think that oftentimes when we're talking about high costs and what can a government, for example, do to reduce those costs, a lot of times that discussion becomes how does that system reduce costs, mm -hmm. um, which is an important conversation because our healthcare system and costs are the most expensive of developed nations in the world, as you pointed out. But I think that a conversation that, that we need to have right now and that is super pertinent is what is the out-of-pocket cost? Like, what are we asking individuals to mm -hmm. pay? And for example, if you don't have really good health insurance right now, um, so you could have insurance, but your costs could still be double of that, mm -hmm. what someone else's cost is for the exact same medication. And I think that that is one of the biggest issues in healthcare we have is lack of transparent and consistent pricing across the board for folks who are uninsured, who get the worst pricing versus people who have, we would say underinsured, meaning they still have very, very high co-pays and deductibles. And based on what we've been discussing so far, that is at the heart of what you all do and why you are involved with the company. Let's back up a little bit. Y'all Stanford grads, correct? We are, so I have two co-founders, Adam and George. We um, met at Stanford University and had this kind of what seemed to be uh, a wild idea at the time of how do we use technology to connect the surplus that exists in our healthcare system and basically put a recycling bin in hospitals, in pharmacies, even manufacturers and wholesalers to help them take surplus unused medications and donate it rather than destroy it. And how do we use technology, leverage the same technology that helps, you know, Amazon or DoorDash uh, deliver a two-day package or a two-hour food delivery? How do we use some of that same technology to ensure people are getting the medication they need to live? And you all have been around since 2009? We were founded in 2009. We started full-time operations in 2011. And it really started as a nights and weekends passion project. We were able to get folks involved. You know, we all had kind of separate careers, thought we were going to go on and do kind of other things. But this, it just became a passion and a point, honestly, of frustration that we could have literally thousands of dollars of medications in a pharmacy down the street and they would be sending it, you know, to a medical waste incinerator instead of being able to donate it to a community health center or a charitable pharmacy to be used for its intended purpose. Do you think many people know about the waste in, that we have in prescription medicine? I don't think that they do. There are so many areas within healthcare where there are just, it's small amounts of waste, right? It's maybe 5%, 10% of waste in a pharmacy or in a health facility like a nursing home. And the waste comes from kind of two places. Mm -hmm. One could just be everyone stocks their inventory a little bit over, right? Like it would be terrible if you walked into a hospital and you some you had a very bad outcome because that hospital didn't have a medication you need. So mm -hmm. everyone has a little bit of an additional inventory. So what happens when that inventory is kind of becomes short dated, those facilities, you know, will send it to be destroyed. Or um, another example might be just a patient. Like it's a, it's really a change in, you know, someone's prescription direction. Someone could be using a mail order pharmacy and um, they no longer need one medication. And so that, you know, drug was going to get shipped out to someone and now it's not. Kia, take our listeners through how you all recycle this medicine. And also for those that might have some concern that the quality of the medicine is not compromised. And is recycle the right word here? Recycle is a, is, it oftentimes helps people understand it, I think, like mm -hmm. putting a recycling bin in a facility. So instead of putting something in the trash, we can put it in a recycling bin. But I guess a more technical term would be redistribution of unused medication. Um, yeah, but that's not so, really fancy in a PSA, though. <laughs> <laughs> it, it may be. We, are, we help collect and uh, redistribute the redistribution of unused medications. A couple notes, Rose, for you. All of these medications are unused, mm -hmm. they are unopened, so they're in tamper-evident packaging. They are all unexpired, meaning they're within the original use date, and these are not controlled substances. So no opioids, things like that. It's really medications that triangulate on a lot of the chronic conditions that a lot of Americans have. Are we talking about like so diabetes and hypertension? Diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, mental health. Um, what's really, really interesting about the surplus that exists is that it pretty much mirrors 
the top 300, top 400 medications that folks need. Mm -hmm. So you have these bins that you place in hospitals or? I'll walk you through it. Yeah, walk me through it. um, Yeah, so a facility could have surplus again because they either maybe over forecasted the demand. So they have, they've, they've ordered a little too much or, you know, there's kind of a patient event, like someone has a dosage change or someone is discharged, someone no longer needs a medication. So these facilities, you know, healthcare is a fairly regulated uh, sector. So generally speaking, they already have to do something with these medications, like they'll keep a log of them, they'll then, you know, put them in a a bin for medical waste destruction. What we're saying is instead of destroying those medications, we can add a recycling bin to these facilities so these medications get matched with a community clinic or charitable pharmacy. Do you all then uh, go and pick them, pick them up or do they ship them to you? So the beauty of technology is we have amazing, we have national courier services that <laughs> exist, right? Um, there's USPS, there's FedEx, there's UPS. So we basically are, this is where the technology comes in. Um, when those bins fill up, the facility can notify us and we can send a courier pickup the next business day to get that particular bin and ship it directly to a charitable pharmacy that's accepting these um, these donated medications. We handle all of the record keeping, we handle all of the regulatory pieces. So our system works across multiple states right now and we can help those medicine donors understand what they can donate and where they can donate. Um, even looking at you know things of like what medications are needed, which medications are not. And then what we can do is match them with a charitable clinic or pharmacy that's doing good work in that community. And so it's important to note for your listeners in states like Georgia. So we actually partner with um, Serum Partners with a nonprofit charitable pharmacy, Good Pill Pharmacy, which we actually helped to launch, which is based in Norcross, Georgia, but is actually a home delivery pharmacy, meaning folks throughout the entire state of Georgia can actually have their medications delivered directly to their home. Mm. So Good Pill takes in these donated medications, inventories everything. If you actually go to the Good Pill website at goodpill.org, you can actually check the stock and see all the different medications, over 500 different medications that are available. Then what happens is an individual just needs to send their prescription to that pharmacy. So sending a prescription to Good Pill is just as easy as telling someone's doctor to send it to CVS or Walgreens. The electronic prescription gets in, gets sent to the pharmacy, it gets matched with that donated supply um, and gets dispensed to that patient and delivered to their home. And um, these programs are really meant to serve folks who are having high prescription drug costs. So either uninsured or have too high of co-pays or deductibles for someone to afford. So in Georgia, Folks can get medications on average. The cost is about $2 for a 30-day supply of medication that includes shipping. Do you all have partners in every state or just a few for now? So in terms of on the kind of medicines going out to individuals, we have partnerships with charitable pharmacies and clinics in California, Colorado, um, Ohio, Iowa, Georgia, and North Carolina. Wow. Would you like to be in more states, I imagine? Yes. So um, I think that the goal at scale is how do we really solve this issue of affordable medications for Mm -hmm. the people who need it most? And so the way we really think about this, and we actually just recently announced um, as a part of um, being recognized by Ted's audacious project, mm-hmm. pretty ambitious goal to get over a million people medications approaching a billion dollars um, over the next five years. And you know, those, those aren't really arbitrary numbers. Um, it's really a strategy where we wanted to get into 40% of communities where low-income families are hit highest, uh, are hit hardest with high drug costs. You all are a nonprofit tech company. And I obviously, most people don't think of a tech company being nonprofit. But do you think your model is sort of where we're going to in the future, where technology and the intersection of all these quality of life, you know, issues come together and social justice issues? You kind of feel that's where we're going with technology and tech companies? 
So I, I went to Stanford University for undergrad in Silicon Valley in California. Like we are not the only ones. Mm -hmm. I know of dozens of tech nonprofits, like we exist because here's the truth of the matter. This technology that has really evolved over the last decade, you know, the same technologies that brought us Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, like just all of these amazing technologies that have proliferated globally they are either going to be used, um, you know, just for, you know, making some people's lives easier and reducing, you know, the friction to get your food delivered, um, which I enjoy and I appreciate individually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's that opportunity that exists, but there's an equally valid and more important um, uses for this technology, which is how do we reduce inequality? Mm -hmm. And so we can use these same technologies that exist to level the playing field for low-income folks and for disenfranchised communities and for underserved communities. And I think that there's a whole group of folks that are really interested in doing that work. And that's why we come to this. And I think that you will see an increased number of organizations who are either taking a non, who, you know, who are either using a nonprofit route like we are, um, or, you know, there's, B Corps, there, there's all these new different models mm -hmm. um, for someone starting an organization, launching a startup that isn't just about, you know, necessarily making billions of dollars, but is about having impact. Working in public radio, I certainly know the importance of partnerships and donations. So you all rely on that as well. What's your annual operating budget at Serum? Yes, yeah, so our annual operating budget, I believe this last year was in terms of operational costs, a little under $2 million. Mm -hmm. um, This is for a national organization that's distributing exponentially more millions of dollars of medications. But we don't actually, cons but the beauty of this work is really that you can use technology to have an exponentiating factor in terms of impact. What's your biggest so expense? Fairly, so biggest expense, I think, in most organizations is, is people. Mm -hmm. Um, it's people. I think for us, close second is shipping. Um, we ship a lot of medications. They're worth millions of dollars, so this makes a ton of sense. But a close second would be shipping costs. So UPS, if you're listening, give them a discount. Talk about, we'd love to talk <laughs> about a discount shipping. Kia, as we wrap up, what is the hope for Serum moving forward? Let's say in the next couple years or maybe because now this pandemic before the year even runs out so i think our goal is how do we use technology to democratize access and really push for massive systems change our healthcare system we cannot continue sending people to a pharmacy and having them not know how much they're going to pay for a medication until they get to that window and then having that price change every time um especially in communities of color right now. Like we cannot live in a society where, you know, folks in Georgia, you know, women in Georgia who are black are three times more likely to die of diabetes than women who are white. Like there's a huge issue of what I used to call kind of healthcare inequality, but I'll now, now as our language has evolved, I would say is an issue of healthcare justice. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the reasons we helped launch Good Pill in Atlanta is a recognition. Well, number one, the policy, we actually were able to really work and find common ground from a policy perspective um, to allow this type of medicine donation program to happen. But I think just more broadly, wanting to see how can we create a new system that prioritizes health and wellness, you know, over profit. And I think that that's something that we are able to do with our structure and using technology in an infinitely scalable way. And so our entire goal is if we can recycle this can, then we can surely recycle a hundred dollar medication and make sure families have access, continuous access to medication that they need to stay healthy so that they can go out and live their best life. And so I think for us, it's how do we continue to grow this program and gain awareness in more communities with more doctors' offices who are already in these communities, community health centers, 
and individual families to let them know that there are organizations that exist um, that are here to create the experience and the healthcare delivery system that they deserve. And I'm curious, Kia, do you hear from some of the community pharmacies that there is a demand or people asking about a particular medication for a particular condition that maybe y'all just haven't been able to get the medicine for? So I think what's been great about what we've been able to do in having a very stable formulary of over 500 medications is that's actually larger than many of these, you know, set cash price lists that exist at big box pharmacies. It's actually, you know, triple or quadruple the size of that list. So when we actually look at this clinically across disease states, across therapy classes, um, it's actually pretty comprehensive. Um, so we are actually able to, through surplus medications, meet a tremendous amount of the need. HIV AIDS as well? We actually do have, we're actually working with some partnerships specifically around specialty drugs for HIV autoimmune issues as well. That is something that is super important to us that, there, that yeah, that we do get surplus. We see that in the system that they can be very expensive antiretrovirals that come through the system as well. And so it's everything from, you know, a basic metformin or, you know, a torvastatin for diabetes or high, or, you know, your heart all the way up to very expensive specialty medications for things like HIV or MS. Mm-hmm. And so the surplus is there to really fill a need of helping, you know, folks who are having these high prescription drug costs and doing it in a really sustainable way. That is our goal of how do we create a brand new system and reimagine how we think about healthcare access for folks, focusing on providing access continuously at affordable pricing. And if folks want a good example about all of this, just look up the history of insulin in this nation and the price of insulin and when it was created, what it was intended for, and where it is now. It's a fascinating story. So, Kia Williams, co-founder of Serum, a nonprofit tech company that distributes surplus medicine to low-income Americans. Kia, thank you for what you and your team do at Serum for so many people throughout the nation. Thank you, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much, Rose, and thank you so much to your listeners. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.